Welcome to Careers in Discovery, your window into the world of leaders in pharma and biotech. Brought to you by Singular Talent, making hiring better for organizations involved in drug discovery and R&D. Emma Skeets is the CEO of Isogenica, a company producing synthetic antibodies for drug discovery programs, which both reduce the use of animals in antibody generation and enable targeting, which has proved challenging to date. Today, I'm joined by Emma Skeets of Isogenica. Emma, welcome to the show. Hi, Tom. Hi. Um, Isogenica, as we were just discussing, is a synthetic antibody company. Um, Tell us a bit more about it. Tell us a bit about the work that you're doing here. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, Isogenica uh, develops uh, fully synthetic antibody libraries. Mm -hmm. And what this means is that we create these libraries. uh, They're generated entirely in vitro um, in the laboratory. So removing the need for us to use um, animals in the production of antibodies. Excellent. And you've been here for about a year in the role of CEO. So tell us a bit about tell us a bit about your role today and the things you've been doing over the last year. And that first year is always one packed with um, change and, and learning. So tell us a bit about that. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, it's been a busy year. Um, it's a very busy time in, in the antibody discovery sector where we work. There's a lot of changes and innovation happening mm-hmm. very quickly. Antibodies are being used in a lot of different therapeutic drug formats yes. and that creates some interesting demands on the type of work and partnerships that we're uh, getting into, um, different demands on the skills that we need to have in our company and the way in which we run partnerships with other organisations. So. A uh, busy time in terms of mm. speaking to uh, pharma and biotech companies, understanding their needs a bit more carefully, uh, thinking about how we can um, restructure and bring new skills into our business to, to help us uh, grow and um, be more effective uh, partner uh, to take antibody um, therapeutics through to the market with our partners. Sure, so it's been very much about fine-tuning the approach, fine-tuning the structure of the business and, and what you're able to offer to, to make the most of what's out there and support your partners. Yeah, absolutely. And also, I think, recognising um, the amount of um, skill and expertise that we already had in Isogenica, mm. in the scientists and leadership that we had here, and making better use of that in the partnerships that we're engaging in with pharma and biotech yes. uh, companies. Uh, really because we see that you know, antibody discovery still remains a very um, complex and um, area of science, multi-step processes, some quite complex um, science involved. And partners in the market it, it don't broadly always have all of that expertise. And so using more of the knowledge and expertise and facilities and technologies that we have to help our partners get to successful outcome and high quality Mm. um, antibodies that they can further develop um, is going to be an ever more important part of what we do here at Isogenica. Yes, and and this concept of synthetic antibodies, you you mentioned one of the benefits being that um, they can be created in vitro. what else does a synthetic antibody, I suppose, bring to the table? What's the, what's the advantage of that approach? 
Yeah, so um, the exciting opportunity that synthetic antibodies create is that we can really go beyond the capacity of natural antibodies. Mm. So uh, the libraries that we've created, these are really massive libraries, uh, more than 10 to the 13 uh, sequences in our libraries. That's To put that into context, that's more sequences than there are stars in our universe. Okay, yeah. Um, uh, where we can design these libraries so we can really carefully control the, the properties of the um, antibody population therein. We can make them more drug-like, so that means mm. making them easier to manufacture, making them more stable for the purposes of storage or administration, um, making it po more possible to reformat them into bi- and multi-specific formats. So all of these things are the types of advantages that uh, synthetic uh, antibodies can bring. And importantly, from those libraries, then we can um, make sure that libraries are extremely diverse. Yes. And that really improves the chances of uh, selecting um, very specific antibodies against a range of um, protein antigens. Mm -hmm. And so we're really, really trying to use this technology to go after some of the um, antigens and targets that have historically been um, a real challenging area for, for antibodies. So think uh, membrane proteins, ion channels, that, that kind of thing. I see. And, and so it also it then gives you the opportunity to, um, I suppose, engineer the antibody sets that you have, the antibody libraries that you have, and, and remove maybe some of the randomness that, that occurs from naturally occurring antibodies. So there can be some. There certainly can be some liabilities uh, right. in naturally occurring antibodies. There are obvious um, liabilities in terms of immunogenicity um, in antibodies derived from um, animals. Mm -hmm. um, we can create antibodies where um, it would be difficult to immunise an animal to obtain a high affinity antibody because of the highly conserved nature yes. of the antigen. So. Um, you know, it's important for us that our immune system doesn't routinely raise antibodies against um, self proteins. Sure, yeah. Uh, when it does, you have uh, rheumatoid arthritis and yes. other very serious yes. conditions. So, um, the fact that we can create these uh, synthetic, naive libraries enables us to raise antibodies against a whole variety of antigens that mm. are otherwise quite challenging to, to generate. Yes, interesting. And as, you know, with the, the partnership model that you have, I'm sure you see those applied in a, a lot of different ways. Um, we'll, we'll come back to that and a little bit about what's happening out there uh, later on. But um, what I wanted to talk to you about today really was your, your journey to this point in your career um, and you know, what's happened along the way and, and uh, what, you, what you might be able to pass on to others. And I suppose I always like to start with where the interest in the initial interest in science came from, where that spark came from a career in science. What are your, what are your memories of that? So my earliest memories of being interested in science were a total fascination from, I think, about the age of seven or eight in marine biology okay um and fascinated with all things sea life uh -huh. um, especially uh sharks right okay <laughs> um and i was very convinced that i was going to study biology or marine biology mm -hmm. at uh, university yes. and in time i in fact did apply to study biology um, at bristol university and the day i got my a-level results 
I decided I wanted to study chemistry. Oh, okay. <laughs> and I rang Bristol University up yes. and they very kindly uh, switched my degree subject okay. on the day. So, what, what happened on that day? <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, well, I, I think that they had been a, had a difference of opinion with my teachers about uh, what my what my predicted actual grades were going to be. I see. And okay. um, on on getting my A in chemistry, I decided that I was right. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and I would actually much prefer to go study at chemistry at university. So I did some I did some courses in biology, yes. but my main degree subject at undergraduate was chemistry. Okay. And, and what was it about chemistry that, that particularly caught your interest? Because obviously you can go in different routes in the sciences, but... So uh, I, it's just a theme I think we'll perhaps come back to talk uh-huh. about later, but um, I liked that it was a really um, logical and deterministic mm-hmm. science. I felt I could really understand the rules and apply them uh, to different challenges and problems yes. that you know, I was asked to look at. And that, there was something just very appealing about that for me. Yes, I understand. Um, and then so, so from there, uh, you went on and did a PhD um, at Oxford. Uh, tell us a bit about that. Tell us a bit about that journey through your academic career, I guess, to start with and, and you know, the, the things that stuck out for you there. Um, so thoroughly enjoyed a chemistry degree at, at Bristol. Um, I had, had the very good fortune of spending a year in industry working at DuPont mm-hmm. in the United States, which was a really formative experience. Yes. Fantastic group of scientists applying their knowledge and science to real world um, opportunities. So. Um, I worked in the, uh, a group that covered everything from new technologies for textiles and manufacturing okay. all the way through to new um, uh, OLED and um, polymer light emitting uh, devices for uh, TVs and flat yeah. screens and that kind of thing. So really interesting uh, science and I, I just knew from that experience that being in the applied sciences and being in industry was absolutely um, where I wanted to be. Because of the applied nature of Because it. of the applied nature of yeah. the science and because of the really fantastic people I had the pleasure of working with that year. Um, and so uh, after uh, a stint at MIT actually mm-hmm. and then um, graduating from Oxford I joined the uh, licensing office of the University of Oxford. Yes. So creating um, startup and spin-out companies based on technology that had been developed at the university and uh, licensing technology and intellectual property to already established companies Mm -hmm. um, in order for them to then develop those technologies and create an impact in the world and improve the health and wealth of our society, yes. courtesy of you know, taxpayer-funded research, and, and that, again, great, great learning experience. Yeah, so that must have been quite a different role, though, to the one that you've been doing at DuPont. Uh, yeah, very yeah. different, <laughs> yeah. Um, so very, so managed a lot of intellectual property, mm-hmm. so great experience in learning about patents on IP filing and managing a portfolio of projects and working with academics to look for translational research funding, writing proposals, talking to investors, writing business plans. So it was a real um, crash course in um, technology, commercialization of technologies, basically. Mm. So did that then spark this interest in the commercial side of things? Because that, that was then where you shifted to, wasn't it, after that? Yeah, so I 
knew after DuPont that I really wanted to stay in the industrial um, mm -hmm. side of science and that, that a career at the bench was not for me. And the working at Oxford University, I had a really great opportunity to meet people who were creating businesses and raising investment for those companies. And it was really inspiring. And I thought, I have got to go join one of these startup mm -hmm. companies. And so I left the licensing office and joined a company that had been formed a little under a year prior, which was called... Uh, Zyoxel, but um, latterly became called uh, CN Bioinnovations. Yes. Um, and uh, yeah, that was my first real opportunity to, to jump into a, a startup company and see what life in a six person organization was, <laughs> was really like. And what were your first impressions? It was every bit as uh, fun and exciting uh -huh. and difficult as I thought it would be. Yeah. <laughs> so tell us a bit more about your time at CN because you know your career really progressed while you were there, and, and mm -hmm. I guess with the growth of the company as well. Um, and it was a you know, you had a very commercial focus at first. You joined as the commercial manager, as you say. So so tell us a bit about that part of your career, that journey through the growth of the company and your own career during that time as well. Yeah, so I was um, with CMBio for eight years mm -hmm. in the end, having joined in hopes that I would get a, you know, I knew they got a year's money and I thought, well, yeah. if I join and I get a year's experience, this will be, you know, great and I'll learn something from it. And uh, anyway, eight years later, I was, um, a, you know, chief executive and um, it, an overall really fantastic experience and um, I think a crucial opportunity that really shaped the company um, was it started with actually some very considerable difficulties we faced with technology um, that we had um, started the company with um, and some very um, fast moving events in the market we were working in with some competitors particularly out of uh, universities in the United States mm. who were progressing very rapidly and we were going out to talk with pharma and biotech companies about the technology this was um, at the time called 3D perfused cell culture technologies but which latterly became known as organ on chip technologies yes. and some competitors of ours were making some very big strides in the US with um, products and technologies that they had developed and we were frequently obviously being compared um, by potential customers and partners to these newly emerging technologies and mm. you know to be honest we were finding it pretty difficult to to keep up and uh, myself and um, the um, uh, my colleague uh, David Hughes, who's now chief executive at CMBio, uh, we were on a trip to the United States, and we had the good fortune of being introduced to a professor of bioengineering at MIT called Linda Griffith. Mm -hmm. And um, kind of the rest, as they say, is history. You know, we we struck up a really fantastic working relationship with uh, Linda and her team and several of her collaborators around the MIT bioengineering department and uh, out of that relationship CN licensed uh, IP from uh, MIT uh, that became the real cornerstone of the technology and products that uh, CN Bio is now selling and yes. and in the process and very quickly after uh, sort of starting that working relationship with Linda a uh, very important opportunity emerged um, in the form of the Defence Advanced Research Projects Agency, or DARPA, mm -hmm. uh, a part of the uh, Department of Defence in the US, uh, put out a request for proposals around building a human body on a chip, so 10 human organs interconnected on a chip 
where you could reproduce the uh, pharmacokinetic and pharmacodynamic properties of therapeutics on a on mm. a platform. And um, we uh, applied uh, to that RFP with uh, Linda and her team. Um, and only a matter of a few months later, we discovered that we'd been successful and okay. our consortium was awarded $26 million um, over a five-year contract to, to build that technology. Yes, which is a big win. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I, and I kind of, you know, at the start, it was a little bit like standing in the foothills of the Himalayas, you know, there was, there was a long road to travel and a lot of things about the path that we were going to have to take that we really, you know, we were going to have to learn about along the way. Um, but it absolutely fantastic experience in the out, the outcome from that technology and the fact that you know products that have emerged from the development of that program are now being sold routinely into pharma and biotech companies is you know just a- absolutely a great mm. outcome for for that collaboration and, and that process absolutely and so you said as a company you had to learn a lot through delivering that technology and um, but of course your role changed a lot during that time as well mm. so i'm sure you had to learn a lot and and take on new things and things like that so i'm really interested in the things that were important development points for you i suppose and the things that you learn along that 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 time with the yeah, so, yeah, yeah, you're right. Um, when I joined the company, I was um, mostly involved in business development. Um, and uh, shortly after we won the DARPA contract, I became uh, chief executive of mm-hmm. CMBio. I think the most important, the, the continuous thread for me was really understanding the market, knowing the customer, understanding the state of play in terms of the competitor landscape, and knowing how we were going to position ourselves mm. uh, as a company um, to be successful in that area. And I think that that was true when I was doing business development and it was just as true as I became chief executive of keeping my finger on the pulse of what was happening in the market um, and understanding what that meant for from a strategic point of view, how we could best use our resources and our efforts to have an impact um, for our company and create value and create products that were valuable for the you know customers we were working with. Knowing the markets, it was the most important mm. thing that, that I did, I think. So understanding what the dynamics of the market are, but also what you bring to it that's unique and, and being able to package that um, to communicate to people, essentially. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. And so, so that brings you to today, um, or a few years later brought you to today and uh, to Isogenica and... Um, I'm interested in that that evolution, I suppose, from from spending that year out at the pond, or finishing your PhD, or, or um, around that time, to going and working for a part of the university, which was probably quite different culturally through your time at CN and to today. There, there must have been things that that stick in your mind as very important, or things that you've really learned along the way, or that are that are key. Um, I guess pieces of of. Um, learning that you've de- you've gathered along the way. I've not put that very well, but, but hopefully you understand what I mean. If there was if there was a few things that you'd point to around that, what would they be? Um, I think one of I'll, I'll share one of the things that I think that I've really learned in the mm. in the process. That would um, be a better question. For me yeah, um, I, I think that um, in. in in the world we live in today, uh, where you know everybody's 
um, lives and what they're doing in their careers and so forth is all very visible on yes. social media and on the internet. There is this impression um, that successful people and successful companies uh, only are ever on this kind of upward trajectory mm. and everything looks very kind of seamless and you know um, that they're very successful because of some uh, you know factor that you, you maybe can't put your finger on but they right. you know um, and I think that the, the reality you know what I've learned through my career um, is that you know building a company or having a impactful meaningful career it's just really hard sometimes <laughs> you know and when it get when the going gets tough it doesn't mean that you're doing something wrong mm. it means that you're you know overcoming adversity and realizing where a project you've delivered or a report you've written or an investor pitch that you've prepared you know is just not good enough it's part of the learning process right. and even really successful companies and really successful people have seen a lot of rejection and difficulty along the way yes and so I think the two key lessons learned here are that you know it can be really hard it's meant to be um, it doesn't mean you're doing something wrong <laughs> number one and not and yes. not to be kind of put, put off by that um, and the second thing is that uh, your ability to get through these kind of tough times these kind of challenging events in your um, career um, they typically you don't fall back on your skills or qualifications. Mm -hmm. The things that really help you get through are your resilience, you know, the amount of grit and ambition that you're willing to bring to overcome these these challenges, and and teamwork. Yes. And so, you know, I really think that I've tried to spend later in my career much more time cultivating those aspects of. Uh, myself and my and the team that I build around myself because it is going to be hard sometimes and they're the characteristics that you're going to rely on to get you through those times so it, interesting because I know that the 17 year old version of me would have absolutely said that it was about my fabulous A-level results and you know <laughs> that I was going to get a first at university and go and study at the world's leading universities mm. you know when when the chips are down it's 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 these other um, skills that are going to get you through. Yeah, and, and you know that point around um, team working, I think, is a really interesting one, and it's one that we hear a lot um, in these interviews. That um, I think, particularly um, for scientists or for people in any sort of profession where intense focus is a core part of it, it can be difficult sometimes to look up and and to see what's around you and. Um, also, I think, to, to understand the value that the environment you're in has. And I think, you know, one of the common um, comments that we get is when people were early in their career, they didn't think much about the culture or the environment or the team or that kind of thing. And that became more important as, as time went on. But that, that's been your, your experience as well. Oh, definitely. And, you know, um, I spend a lot more of my time now than I did or, or even you know really had opportunity to earlier in my career making sure that the people within our organization our, our investors our board members mm. but also partners that we're working with or would like to work with really understand what we're trying to do as an organization um, you know the values we bring to the work we, we're doing and to how we expect to um, work with other parties um, 
in, in developing programs. It's just a much bigger part of, of what I do, you know, attracting and retaining talent. All of these things are just a much bigger feature of, of my role now than, mm. than ever. No, of course. And doing a, a degree and PhD in chemistry and in the work you did at DuPont, you touched on there was lots of different applications of the chemistry mm. you were doing there. And um, I know that the, the groups at Oxford that commercialise technology, they work in lots of different areas. Why this sector for you? Why, why drug discovery, the, the biomedical sector, the biotech sector for you? So uh, I think you can probably take a look on my LinkedIn page, but I'm really, I'm really passionate about the way that new technologies can, uh, are really helping to rapidly advance um, improvements in healthcare. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm interested, I mean, obviously we're very um, therapeutically focused, sure. but it's been really interesting to look across the whole spectrum of uh, diagnostics and public health and, um, you know, the way that um, machine learning is being applied to uh, do more um, accurate and earlier diagnosis of certain conditions and, and the huge impact that's, that this is having. Mm. So. Um, that that's one of the things that really appeals to me about uh, the pharma biotech sector. Yeah, and and talk a bit more about that, if you will, uh, around the position that Isogenica has, and I suppose similar to CN Bioinnovations as well, as a as a partner to these companies means that you must see lots of different discovery programs, approaches, uh, uh, targets, all these kinds of things. What what are the things that really excite you? What are the things you see out there that, that are really innovative? Um, so, you know, we have a, a single domain um, VHH sure. uh, library, um, these very small format antibodies that are really ideally um, suited to going after, uh, to being included as a component in more complex uh, therapies. So, for instance, antibody uh, drug conjugates, so attaching a chemical payload onto an antibody or being formatted into things like cell therapies where the, the single domain antibody is effectively used as uh, to home the uh, uh, cell uh, to a target tissue, say a, a tumour antigen or something. So um, we're seeing a lot of those kind of complex therapy opportunities mm. coming through and having a lot of um, discussions and opportunities to apply uh, the single domain library for some of those very cutting edge areas and you know in the cell therapy area in particular the UK has a lot of um, great strengths and there's been a lot of investment from the government and through Innovate into things like the um, cell therapy uh, catapult so there's a real strength in depth and um, uh, that works really nicely for us here yes. at Isogenica. Um, more broadly I'm really interested in um, the approaches that people are taking to better understand biology. Okay. Um, and because one of the things that we're interested in is being able to make uh, antibodies uh, the uh, sort of modality of choice against a w- much wider range of, of targets. So we spoke earlier about membrane proteins and ion channels, which historically haven't been a really happy hunting ground for antibody drug discovery. Mm. Um, very uh, limited number of examples of um, uh, therapies that are currently being evaluated in the clinic against those types of antigens. Um, 
So it's important for us as a company to have opportunities to exploit our libraries and our technologies against some of these um, interesting and challenging targets um, as more of the uh, technologies and capabilities and understanding around some of these um, targets um, comes to the fore. Um, I think the third area I'm really interested in is how um, you know, I spoke earlier about how I really uh, the deterministic nature of chemistry and the logic of it. Yes. You know, a deter more deterministic sciences like chemistry and physics. The neat thing is that cause and effect is much better understood. Right. Yeah. And frankly, in biology and drug discovery, if we understood cause and effect better than we do, <laughs> you know, we it would be um, we'd be better capable of um, understanding and predicting. Mm. Um, the progression of disease or how effective a, a particular treatment or mechanism of action might be in, in halting or reversing um, a disease. So I'm, I'm really interested in, in how um, you know, there is much more application of, say, um, engineering, math, systems biology to help us understand these targets. Uh, but also, as I touched on earlier, uh, sort of machine learning, deep learning, AI type approaches mm. to yes. to help us. You know, because frankly, um, there are a lot of diseases today that are not effectively treated because we actually don't understand the biology mm. very well. And and knowing that better, and that's obviously the important work that is being done at a lot of universities, but also in industry. Um, the better we understand biology, the more um, that we can apply the tools that Isagenica and others have yeah. and, and bring them to, to bear. And those technologies like machine learning and AI, they're, I suppose inherently, they're probably better suited to understand these more complex diseases, right? These systems biology-based diseases and these things that aren't necessarily straightforward in their mechanisms or straightforward in their nature. Yeah, exactly. Exactly yeah. that. Um, and so, if you think about, I suppose, the, the things... Oh, actually, I'll ask you a different question. So, we've mentioned a few times through our conversation today that you've maintained, I guess, close connections with academia through partnerships that you've had with the companies, obviously through your work at Oxford. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's an inherent part of most biotech companies these days that, that they at least talk to academia, if not actively working with them. If there are people out there who are sat in academia, maybe doing a postdoc or finishing up a PhD, who are thinking about a career in industry, what are the things that you would say to them about a career in industry, and, and what are the things that they should be aware of, do you think? Mm. Uh, so I think that there are um, many um, more opportunities for uh, graduate students, especially um, while studying for a PhD, but also it's true at undergraduate level as well, mm. um, to get experience. Um, and to find out more about what a career in industry looks like before um, making that decision, making yes. that commitment. Um, so, uh, you know, I give an example. Um, the uh, Biotech Industry Association, the BIA, um, have run a workshop uh, called Pulse in connection with the Francis Crick Institute um, that I've been involved with the last couple of years that... Um, invites graduate students to think about um, forming um, businesses based on technology they've been developing whilst at university or, or perhaps that they just have other ideas to develop um, and uh, helps them to understand what it is to write a business plan and to mm -hmm. write an investor pitch and file intellectual property and to get advice on 
um, matters of um, the law or contracts or, you know, just bringing together a really wide uh, group of people with different skills and experience um, to give young PhDs and postdocs exposure to what it is to be entrepreneurial yes. um, in the sciences. So that's just one example. Um, you know, I think that through, and um, I had the benefit through an undergraduate degree of, of being able to go and spend a year in industry at DuPont, and mm -hmm. that was really, as I've said, pretty formative experience for me. Um, there are, um, especially around the, um, the, the biotech hubs around the Golden Triangle here in the UK, in Oxford, Cambridge and London, but it's also true at other, you know, leading universities, you know, seen some of the stuff that they do at Strathclyde University, for yes. instance, north of the border. Um, the that there are opportunities for graduates to attend networking mm -hmm. uh, events. My key piece of advice is get out and talk to people. <laughs> you you can just learn, you know, so much, so much more quickly mm -hmm. by going and talking to to people. And in our industry and in the sciences, people are really generous with their time, yes. and so always happy to you know, answer questions of enthusiastic young people who are keen to take uh -huh. a career in the sciences. So, yeah, just get out and talk to people. And if people are interested in that commercial career path, um, so I'm, I'm guessing, correct me if I'm wrong, that before you um, got into the role for in tech transfer at Oxford, had you had any formal commercial training? Had you done any? No? Okay. Um, how did you learn that? Where, where, where did you pick up that knowledge and that expertise? So... Working at the licensing office, so Oxford University Innovation, um, that was just a massive learning sure, experience yeah, yeah. for me. Um, and um, you know, I, I had a, a you know really excellent group of people around me who introduced me to the world of um, you know filing uh, patents and, um, and maintaining um, IP portfolios. Um, working with academics, writing grant proposals, that kind of thing. So it was a really uh, important learning mm. experience um, and I wholeheartedly would recommend it to yes. anybody who was interested. And as um, tech licensing um, offices around the country develop, as it becomes ever more important mm. for the UK to um, see... Uh, commercial success and outcomes and impacts from the research that taxpayers are financing, um, tech licensing offices are going to become an ever more important part of the, the landscape of universities and, and tech transfer in general. Mm. So I, I think that that's only going to present growing opportunities for people to sort of r refine their skills and learn about entrepreneurialism yes. and finance and commercialising technology through through those kinds of um uh, career opportunities. Yeah, so just getting out there and doing it was the, and surrounding yourself with people who knew about it was the, the key way that you picked it up. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And we talked right at the top about the work you've been doing at Isogenica over the last year. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, that, that it's been a very busy time and there's been a lot going on. But tell us a bit about where the company's at now, what's next, what the plan is going forward. Yeah, so. Um, I'm really excited because I feel that we've got to a point with the company where um, we're, we're really confident and knowledgeable in um, where our technologies can be most successfully applied. Mm -hmm. um, we've brought together the um, skills and techniques um, under the roof of our company that enable us to pursue now some of these really much more challenging um, uh, drug targets. 
Um, I think because we're just really, as a sector, only scratching the surface of the types of diseases and, and targets that could be addressed by antibodies. And I really believe that AstraZeneca is in a position to, mm. um, to, to capitalise upon an opportunity to just open up the diseases and targets that, that we can pursue um, with synthetic antibodies that, like the ones that we can generate. Um, so, yeah, doing a lot of work to uh, build our team and, you know, fill some skills gaps, um, create different opportunities to partner with pharma and biotech companies. You know, ultimately, we want to have a really healthy portfolio of um, new antibody-based therapeutics mm-hmm. that are being taken forward to the clinic by our partners and, you know, also um, in time by ourselves. So, okay. um, it's... Uh, yeah, busy, busy times. But. Yeah, so you're developing some assets yourself or planning to? Yeah, because I think that pharma and biotech companies have um, hoped for a long time that it would be possible to generate, say, functional antibodies against iron channels. And frankly, it's been very hard and there hasn't mm-hmm. been a high degree of success. And so there's some scepticism um, in the market about the ability and of people to do that, including ourselves, and rightly so. Sure. Um, and the ultimate um, proof in this will be demonstrating that we can uh, generate uh, functional um, antibodies against these types yes. of targets. And I absolutely believe we're in a, a great position to do that. Yeah, and I think increasingly companies don't have to do platform or asset these days, do they? There's, there's more companies that are pursuing both as a... So Emma, if there was one, I suppose, final thought or piece of advice or or comment that you'd like to leave our audience with, we may have touched on it already, but but what would be the key thing that you'd want want them to take away? Well, from a point of view of, you know, younger people coming into Mm -hmm. the sector, I would say, um, get out there and talk to people, find your local networking events. It's such an interesting sector. There are so many exciting different technologies, approaches uh, going on. You know, you'll find something that you're interested in in our sector. I'm really sure of it. Um, But just get out there and talk to people and Mm. um, find out what you're interested in. Because I think people, ultimately, people that are successful, and I think that companies that are successful, they're passionate about what they do. Um, and it's really obvious when you talk to people who are passionate about what they do. Yes. Um, so first and foremost, find out what you're interested in. Mm-hmm. And you can only do that by um, getting out and finding out what there, what there is to do. Yes. And there's a whole world out there that people may not be aware of if they don't look. Um, fantastic. Emma, thank you for your time. Thanks, Tom. Thanks for joining us on Careers in Discovery, and don't forget to subscribe for more insight into the world of drug discovery and R&D. Do take a look at our sponsors, Singular Talent, and their mission to make hiring better for companies and individuals in drug discovery and R&D. You can find them at www.singulartalent.io. See you next time.